You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features interviews with the faculty, members, and staff who are a part of Ali at UNT's community of lifelong learners. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking with Dylan Ray, eSports coordinator of the Varsity program at the University of North Texas. That's electronic sports to you non-gamers out there. Organized multiplayer video game competitions. Dylan's background is in the audio industry, having worked as a DJ, in live radio performances, music production, and of course, sound design for video games and competitive gaming. He received his MS in recording arts at the University of Colorado in Denver, where he conducted research on how tolerant we are to unrelated distractions in digital binaural signal processing. I imagine that must have a great deal of relevance for video game players, especially in competition. Welcome, Dylan. Thank you for having me. It's awesome to have you here. I've been looking forward to learning more about what is quickly becoming a wide-reaching sensation in the form of the massively popular world of competitive video gaming. Viewing the tournaments held in different places around the world, like China or Poland, where the 2017 Intel Extreme Masters had a live attendance of 173,000 people. That just blows my mind. The crowds looked like those from concerts for rock star icons or mega, mega Super Bowl games. Explain the world of esports to us. Sure. So... Competitive video gaming has been around for a very long time, since StarCraft started to come out or some fighting games that were coming out in the 90s. But in the mid-2000s, you started to see a general trend of more social teamwork games that were starting to come out with Counter-Strike or Quake. They really started to get the ball rolling of transforming video games from the... I. Am in my basement playing a you know solo game by myself to much more of an interactive team experience where you were reliant on multiple people on your team and be able to coordinate with them. And so that kind of elevated the competitive field of these games and created teamwork in them. But the technology involved to be able to watch people play these games also improved drastically. Would that be like broadband and that kind of thing? Yeah, internet internet connection speed certainly made the competitive multiplayer experience improve, but it also made it possible for people to watch these matches online. And, you know, when you had somebody that maybe have never heard of the game before or want to know more about it, became the the need for someone to explain what was happening on screen. And so you started to have people that started to describe what was happening. But because gaming was such a fast-paced thing for a lot of these new titles, you essentially had a shoutcaster that was just talking as fast as they could to explain what was happening. And it started to slowly evolve into something that you typically see in like a broadcast announcer like you'd see on in the NFL, breaking down plays and explaining what is happening. So it started to evolve into this viewership experience, not just people playing, but you could 
go online and watch people play these competitive video games. And many people do. And many people do. Hugely popular. The League of Legends World's Championship gets more viewers than the Super Bowl. That's really something. Now, is it more popular in other countries than the United States, or is it equivalent in popularity? I think it really depends on the game. But I would say in the U.S., I think there's much more of an ingrained stigma against esports than you see in other countries. That's kind of eroding and changing, I think, especially as more non-endemic business interests start to invest into esports as they kind of see this growing trend. But I would say it's potentially taken a little bit more seriously in other countries. You say it depends on the game. So the tournaments are split up into categories depending on the type of game. Yeah. So there's a lot of different video games that are out there. I'm in the same way that there's a lot of different types of books or movies. There's a lot of genres that appeal to a wide variety of people. Some games inherently are going to be a bit more targeted to a particular demographic or region that might cater to that particular audience. For instance, here in the U.S., I would say League of Legends, Fortnite, Counter-Strike, Rocket League are pretty important to the U.S. group demographic as far as a professional scene is concerned. But then if you look at other countries, a game called Dota 2 is much more popular in European countries. So it really just kind of depends. So how does that work in terms of the leagues as far as the games go? Does a particular league compete in one game all the time, or are there different teams within a league playing different games? And to piggyback onto that, how does that work at UNT? Sure, yeah, that's a great question. So the business model for most esport organizations, so an organization that owns a team or a franchise, kind of is like its own mini athletic enterprise in itself. So take, for instance, Complexity here in Frisco. They own multiple different teams that participate in different games. So they have a Counter-Strike team that competes in Counter-Strike. In the past, they've had a Hearthstone team that competes in Hearthstone and uh, Call of Duty and those kind of things. So they own a couple different teams that participate in the leagues that those teams would normally participate in. It's kind of like having multiple horses in different races, but allows them to kind of remain diversified, but also their brand get into multiple different markets. And I'd say that's how the vast majority of larger professional organizations operate. So like uh, Envy, they're also here in Dallas. They own multiple different teams, like the an Overwatch team. I think they just also invested into a Call of Duty team. And so they really kind of diversify that way. And we at UNT operate in a similar capacity. UNT Esports provides official support for four teams that our students are able to compete for in intercollegiate competitions and receive scholarship for their work for the university. And what games do your teams play? So in intercollegiate, I would say the two most popular games or the most uh, support that there is there for would be League of Legends and Overwatch. We also provide scholarships for Rocket League and Hearthstone. How did you determine the games that your players play in? A great question. So uh, for me, I first look at just general popularity, transcending collegiate, but what are games that our students, prospective students and alumni going to actually care about our competitive success? If we create competitive farming simulator team, it doesn't matter if no one's going to watch us do well in that particular game. League of Legends has traditionally been the most viewed, most popular game that's out there as far as competitive esports, and so it was a no-brainer to add. Overwatch, when we added it, had officially started franchising teams, and so creating a business model that very much resembles Major League Baseball. So someone can own a regional franchise, so... 
Envy owns the Dallas Fuel, as an example. And so that particular team is essentially the Northern Texas professional Overwatch team. And so it very much made a lot of sense for us to, to add Overwatch as our first-person shooter that we had in our game. Also, that game made a lot of sense because while it is a shooter game, it's much more cartoony and in the same it's not like some of the other titles that are out there so for our first shooter that we added to a college team it made the most sense do you have a large following among unt students for a brand new program i'd say we started off pretty well i'd say our bigger events have definitely been when we've done live tournaments and events or if a team has made it to a national championship so when we first started our program we did kind of like a a celebration launch event and we had about 500 students show up live to the lyceum at uh, at UNT to essentially watch us announce that UNT Esports is now a thing. And then fast forward essentially a year and a half later, and our Rocket League team got to play in a national championship for Collegiate Rocket League. And there were 70,000 people that watched them play live on Twitch. And then an additional 100,000 people that watched the first airing of a TBS show that covered that event. So that was pretty significant for us. Um, And it's kind of crazy how we've grown that fast. I know when we first started talking, Dylan, I was just very interested in the fact that this is a college sport. What, Atari came out in 1982, and like you said, there were lots of people in their basements, up in their rooms with friends coming over. They're playing team games, but they're pretty much in the houses. But then things started to change. The large numbers and the huge amounts of prize monies are phenomenal. I had read that at one of the big tournaments last year, the prize pool was $35 million. Dota 2 definitely does large prize pool numbers, yeah. So is this all just exploding recently? I would say it's been a hidden, like a, a, maybe like a well-known secret for about 10 years, but it's been growing exponentially for about four years. Um, I mean, to kind of give you some perspective, because I did play competitive gaming for a while, I'm about, oof, about five years ago. And it was essentially some me and some friends that we had met, you know, during college. And we played this game called Dota 1 when we were in college. And we went to a couple of tournaments and events um, in the local area in Colorado. And we quickly learned that we were actually pretty good at this game. And so we continued to play for a couple of years after graduating from Colorado State University and uh, quickly realized we were one of the better players in Colorado. And we were going to events where we would make some cash playing. It was really, really fun, but we knew we were not good enough to continue to go on and and go forward. And a lot of us were starting to pick up full-time jobs and all that stuff. And I could have put a lot more work into it and maybe made a little bit more money, but I decided it was a lot smarter just to go to grad school and start working on my game development career path. So that was about five years ago. And so now, you know, after graduating and getting my degree and doing job hunting down here in tech. Texas, um, I saw this job and I was like, wow, that was like my dream job like four or five years ago. So that's kind of something that I I very much think I'm very blessed in finding. So the days of mom and dad saying, put that controller down, you'll never get anywhere playing video games are over, I guess, huh? Yeah, I definitely heard... (laughs) I heard that a lot, but, you know, growing up myself. And I think now it, it's funny to see the difference or it's, it's funny going to, I, I think surreal is a better word. It's it's very surreal 
going to watch a high school tournament and have a parent come up to me and be like, this is my daughter. She's working really, really hard. She's at this level. This is her rank. She really wants to go into UNT and play for you. A video game stage mom. Yeah, like it's, um, you know, you're starting to see essentially high school to collegiate recruiting. And that's kind of something that's starting to happen this year because there's a lot of high schools that are also starting to pick this up. And so these are parents that are actively recognizing that this is something that matters a lot to their son or daughter. And instead of shunning it, they're like, all right, this is what my child is good at. Maybe it might be able to help them in their future. It sounds like not only for people who have a possible future in playing the game, you also have the shoutcasters that you mentioned that are like esports sportscasters. There must be other job skills and careers that center around this. Yeah, I think the whole broadcast component behind esports is very fascinating to me. And I think it's a great opportunity for our students at UNT because unlike football or basketball, where production is very much dialed in and is not owned by UNT, you know, a lot of the events that our students compete in or the leagues that we compete in, the resources just aren't there yet on the collegiate level to have every single match covered, which means I have about 20 students that are involved in this kind of pseudo internship where they set up all of the gear production, and then they have casters that cover the match for our UNT game. That's terrific experience in a lot of areas. Yeah, it really gets a lot of practical education for these students to cover these games and find out if this is something that they really like doing, or if they're able to pick up a skill set or two from that when they leave here at UNT. And so that's something that I, I really like about our program is that we have our competitive players and coaches, but on the other side, we have the the viewership team that help us put on production for our events. And I think that's something that I'm, I'm pretty proud of as far as what our students are able to accomplish. Now, here's the big question. Okay. What is your reaction to the remark that playing video games is not a sport? Yes. So I, I get this question a lot. And I think it's a very interesting one because I, I think it does showcase the immediate or first thing that comes to people's mind when they think of a reason not to do this or a reason that wh why is this a thing? It's not even it's is it a sport? My answer to that is that it's somewhere in the middle. And it doesn't matter. That's a great answer. Uh, somewhere in the middle being, I like to ascribe, because I refer to the people that are competing for the university for UNT as athletes. On this sheer notion that when you start to call them athletes, the way that you take care of them, the way you manage them, and what you expect from them starts to make sense for how it operates on a collegiate level. I like to consider esports much more like horse racing. There's a lot of endurance, knowledge, some to a certain degree athletic capability. But in a horse race, it's really the horse that's doing all of the work. The jockey is kind of along for the ride and has some general horse riding knowledge and expertise. But the true athletic component really is the horse. And I think for esports, it's going to be your computer. And so there is a lot of mental knowledge and reflexes that are involved in esports that have some sort of physical component to it. A lot of work and dedication goes into getting that good. Some of our Rocket League team, which is ranked number two in the United States. That's fantastic. Number two in the United States. Wow. Yeah. Our Rocket League team, that for the ones that got the viewership, they're ranked number two in the United States as of fall 2019. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, really, it's those players. I mean, those players have, I have multiple 
students that have put over 5,000 hours into playing Rocket League. So basically that think of the, the same, that 5,000 hours uh, research that's out there. That's how much time and dedication you need to put into something to be really good at something. I think that one could say that competing in esports involves planning, timing, and execution to win the highest score. And that is what makes it a sport. Maybe not the physical exertion, but I have to say that if I look at all of your players using your hands on those controllers, it's pretty complicated. And the fine motor skills are extraordinary. Yeah. And if you're not careful, though, like I think especially in the professional scene, there are esport athlete or athletes that get injured because they're spending so much time essentially doing what they do. And I think um, because of that, that's brought in a whole industry of sports medicine and sports psychology in the professional scene that help people with carpal tunnel because we have esport athletes that are 20 years old that are developing carpal tunnel because they're putting so much work into it. And so training students and training these young kids how to take care of themselves and healthy body posture and all those things that really kind of curb those. But I think where I was kind of getting to for the fact that it really doesn't matter whether it is a sport or whether it isn't a sport, is that it operates in the same business model as you would expect from a traditional athletic model. And how's that? So you have your students or you have your team that you put together. They play against another team and you build that same business model around viewership. People are excited to watch it. So you build ads around watching the experience and you have people that are cheering for your team to win. They're sad when they lose and that they're excited to watch your team compete in the same way that everyone turns on football and watches football. It's a game they care about and they're excited about, you know, how well the Dallas Cowboys do just replace that with, you're now watching some cars playing soccer for rocket league on your TV. And it's a very similar experience. So whether or not it's a sport doesn't quite add up to me because the, the overall experience is the same. If you go to a live esport event. There are going to be people that are going to be screaming when their team scores and people that are cursing when their, their team performs bad or some sort of experience kind of, uh, you know, kind of, I don't know, booing at a ref. Like all, all that kind of energy is there at a professional esport competition. I had watched a Netflix explained documentary on esports. That one's good. It was very good. And one of the quotes that I took away from it that I thought was a good one was that esports is just pressing buttons in the same way that chess is just a board game. I thought that was great at putting esports at the level that it is. Yeah, and I think that that frames it pretty well too. And when I kind of do sort of like esports 101, I actually use chess a lot because it's a great way to explain a game like League of Legends, the same way that chess is a game that I can break down to you and explain to you in about five minutes what, what the pieces do. do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, you, essentially, you have your pieces, your board, you, know, you have various pieces that do various things, and you have an easy to understand objective, right? right. Get checkmate. Right. Esports, a lot of the, the games, so like Overwatch or League of Legends, I can explain to you in five minutes. You have five players, for League of Legends, for instance, you have five players on a map on each team, and those players each have four abilities that they can use throughout the game to either help their allies or destroy the other team. And that allows them to push forward into the enemy base and destroy a building. And if that building falls, it's essentially checkmate and the game is over. So you have to protect your building and you have to attack their building. And so when that building falls, the game is over. And so what is the best strategy? 
That's what you have to figure out, the best strategy. Just like chess, there are thousands of strategies. It's a great brain exercise. Yeah, it's, you know, there's a reason why, like if you take a look at my program, 50% of our athletes are from the College of Engineering. Are they? Yeah, so the very STEM-orientated students that are very analytical and are able to take a step back, decide what they need to do, and do it and are able to make those decision pathways uh, very, very quickly. The other player that I, I like to interact with or really kind of encourage are the people that maybe not a STEM-educated person, but have put thousands of hours into the sport and are able to just do things very fast in the same way that you just, if you're an athlete, that, that muscle memory of being able to do the right thing at the right time without even thinking about it. So those kind of two people kind of really make up really good eSport athletes in general. Something else that I think is very interesting, and I wonder what your thought is on it as a professional in the field, is that unlike what we think of in traditional games like basketball or football, game designers can add patches to change the rules or presentation of the game at any time, changing the strategy. I would imagine that could become quite controversial at times, but would increase the difficulty and the requirements at being really good at the game. Yeah, our... <laughs> Our players are and our coaches do a lot of homework. I think there's no better way to really describe it of studying all of the different rule sets. I mean, going back to League of Legends, there was just recently a patch that buffed or essentially made some particular characters better and then found some particular characters that were performing better than other characters. And so they nerfed them. So they tone down some abilities to make it a more balanced game is the overall objective. But as I kind of use in the chess analogy, um, League of Legends with all of their abilities and all of their characters is so much harder to balance than a game of chess. So anytime they do some of these changes, it might have a ripple effect. People are able to kind of discover a month down the road and realize, oh, now that this champion is not as good, that makes this champion so much better to choose in our draft phase or something like that, and they'll kind of exploit it. And so balancing a game like League of Legends or Dota or Overwatch is a constant struggle for the game developers to be able to pull off. And so they they fix it with these patches. And so our students or you know a professional player has to read up on these changes and make a decision on, do I change my play style a little bit? Do I now start focusing on this objective because this aspect of the game isn't as relevant anymore? And so they're always thinking about these different things. And I think that's actually where coaching comes into play. We, for a lot of our teams, we have anywhere between two to three coaches that worry about a lot of that stuff for our players and essentially make recommendations on what they need to start focusing on. If uh, it's an Overwatch or League of Legends, what characters maybe it might be worthwhile adopting into our strategy. You know, I had mentioned earlier about the large amounts of prize money there is at some of the tournaments. Where does all that money come from? It depends on the game. I know Dota 2 has the largest prize pool in esports, or at least over the longest period of time, the, the largest prize pool in esports. They do their funding one part from the developer that just makes money off of the game and the microtransactions or the purchases of the game involved. They also do like a, a battle pass during their main competitive season where I can spend a little bit of money 
and I know that 50% of what I spend goes directly into the prize pool for that tournament. So that's one model. That one's not as widely used. I think a lot of it really comes from the ad revenue generated from the viewership of the events. A tournament will get various sponsors and things like that that would equate to the prize pool for that tournament. Others like Riot, Riot, who owns League of Legends, is making, I don't have a number off the top of my head, but so much money around just the game itself. Because League of Legends, there's so many people playing this free game that people are paying, you know, in microtransactions or various things to give them resources to do pricing. But Riot also is really, really good at monetizing a lot of things that you would kind of see like the Super Bowl monetize for their championships. So they'll get musical artists to do onstage performances leading up to their event. Yeah, and they'll get music or do music videos that hype people up to watch it. And the song that is involved in that video immediately starts going onto the charts. Like Rise from, I think, uh, two years ago was a song that performed really, really well. But, but essentially, they're really good at monetizing every kind of aspect around it because they own it. The game developer is the developer of football. They are also the NFL, so they manage the viewership of football. And they're also the referees that make all of the rules about football. And so they own every single business point of the viewership and play experience of League of Legends. What an interesting, interesting world. That's really something. Tell us about UNT scholarships for varsity video game players. UNT offers 20000 in scholarships for the 2019-2020 season. It's something for our first year, we decided to split evenly throughout the program um, for any student that was involved either in coaching or playing on the team. Does UNT offer degrees for esports? I notice some universities like Ohio State and Shenandoah University in Virginia list degree programs for esports. There is work being done towards it. Sport entertainment management degree in the College of Business is doing a specialization in esports located on the Frisco campus. So essentially you're learning how to manage a sport team in the same way that you might be able to manage a football team, but you can apply that same business principles to managing an esport team. So I think as far as a career path and getting a higher education in the esport industry, it's a really smart path to go. It's definitely coming along, right? Yeah. Well, and I think that's what esports needs is that more people that are focused on the business aspects of what makes competitive video game profitable for these companies. How do you go about identifying potential players for your program? Do they come to you or do you go to high schools and say, hey, I like the way you play, like you mentioned the mother coming up to you? Yeah, so I participate in a couple different local events where I go and there'd be a chance that I'd be able to interact with high schoolers that are interested in coming to UNT. We also have sort of a open application system where if you are interested in coming to UNT and particularly playing on our eSport program, we have a digital application that students can essentially fill out. And if they meet some of our benchmarks, they're able to apply. Esports is great in the sense that they have a really, really well-oiled and kind of defined ranking system for the people that compete or play in these tournaments. In the same way that if you were in like a, a combine per se, you get evaluated on your overall performance in a combine if you're trying to get into football. These players, even on the high school or middle school level, are continually learning how good are they and what is their place in the team they compete in. So if you are grandmaster in Overwatch, you know you're in one of the 0.5 percentile players in the U.S. So it kind of gives you a good idea of 
one, where you stand with everybody that plays the game, and two, kind of what are your chances of making it into a collegiate team? So what would you say to a potential player of the time commitment that's going to be involved, or perhaps what UNT can offer them? The first thing I tell anybody, it doesn't matter if I'm you know, talking to them digitally on the phone or if they come to me and, and, and ask me that they want to go to UNT and compete in esports, I'll say, great, what do you want to study? Because what I love about the program that I'm operating in is that it's something new and different from traditional esports in the sense that our students are, well, students and they got to complete their four-year degree um, on top of whatever obligations or responsibilities that they have. Just like a football player for UNT, you know, they also have to maintain their GPA, go to classes and, and graduate. So that's the first thing I always say. <laughs> Going on beyond that, I think a couple things that I like to recommend to people is uh, really focus on your teamwork and skills with the people that you play with. You could be not the best player, but if you are able to tap into what I kind of call like a gamer zen, where you are able to distance yourself from the results and not focus on the negative components that are happening on a game to be able to lose a game and immediately be able to say, all right, well, I know we didn't do X, Y, Z. Let's just go into the next game and try our best. Sounds like good advice for a lot of different areas in life. It's a skill that is certainly not undervalued in the esport industry, but it's something that is very hard to teach. It's something that you have to work very hard on. How many hours a week do you think? On general esports or just general kind of mentality? I'm not sure. <laughs> Uh, you know, mentality, I mean, like within our program, my graduate assistant is a sports psychologist and he works with our team throughout the week. He'll do one-on-one -on -one sessions with our players and sit down with them and talk about their mental obstacles that they face or what barriers that they're encountering that are hindering their overall growth or what are various trigger points that they've experienced in a game that start to get their blood boiling and their uh, focus on what matters start to deteriorate. Because that component of gaming is, is so important, that mental strength in a player. There's a lot of different things you can do. There's some books out there that are very much just on essentially meditation and being able to channel a certain amount of calm in the face of craziness, I guess. That is such a huge asset. Along with learning the strategies, strategic thinking is such an important exercise for better brain function. And then all of the other elements that come along with it, as well as having fun and being able to socialize with a group of people who also want to have a lot of fun. Exactly. Yeah. I think the end result of a player being on one of these teams is the exhilaration that the team experiences when they pull off something that they didn't think was originally possible, that we beat a team that we've always that we've never beaten before in our history, or that we've reached a new competitive record for our team. Those moments I never forget that I see on those kids' faces. I bet. They have to be memorable experiences for everyone. What is the college look for a student that wants to compete at that level? Our students participate about 15 to 20 hours a week for the university. They come to a physical location on campus, whether it's our Erie facility or if it's our Nest facility, and they practice for 
about two hours with an extra hour for evaluation and warm up and general strategy conversation. So generally speaking, it's about a three hour session for practices. They'll also spend about one day a week watching replays of either previous matches or an opponent that we're about to face in the weekend for a competition. What makes collegiate esports, and I think a lot of esport programming in general very interesting, is that our team, for the most part, competes from our facility on UNT. So on any given day, we're competing against universities across the country. And so one day we might be competing against a university in New York, we might be competing against UCI in California or even a regional Texas team here in Texas. And so that part is pretty fascinating and also kind of cool in the sense that we could say like, oh yeah, we just played Colorado University and we beat them. And you didn't even have to leave Denton. And we didn't even have to leave our chairs. And so that competition is very fascinating, which also makes the viewership component on Twitch or YouTube very, very important for people to be able to watch the matches. We do travel to a certain degree. There's a lot of local events here in the DFW area. Honestly, DFW is very quickly becoming one of the most important mega cities on the map in the U.S. for esports. I think it has a lot to do with some of the professional teams that are here, the large demographic interest to tap into as far as the sheer volume of people that are here. But there's multiple arenas and others that exist physically here in the DFW area. So we get to go to events and compete on stages. We were very fortunate in the fact that the Rocket League National Championship was actually right here in Arlington. So we only had to drive 45 minutes and we were able to be at our national competition. I find this to be incredibly interesting. I mentioned to you before that my son established a video game club at Stony Brook University in 2012 because there wasn't anything there at the time for people to come together in this way to play video games. And now there is this level that is beyond anything I could have imagined. Are you in a particular league like football is divided into? Do you have particular levels that you compete at? For the most part in collegiate esports, a lot of it is very club-based. And this kind of like sport club, I think is a good kind of way to describe it. And that's sort of the entry point for most intercollegiate competition uh, because how collegiate esports really got started was a bunch of students like your son saying, hey, let's put some teams together and start playing against other universities. And collegiate varsity is incredibly new to the scene in the sense of official university recognition of these collegiate teams and providing things like financial assistance or dedicated facility space or a staff member like myself to manage these teams. And so this year and beginnings of last year and and this year, we have actual structured tournaments that are just catered towards teams that have varsity status. And you have multiple tournament organizers like Blizzard coming out with definitions of what makes a university's program varsity that allows them to compete. And a lot of it is very focused on providing scholarships to students to compete for their university, a dedicated facility space to compete out of official recognition and support from the university in general, and then paid staff to oversee these students. And so that's kind of been a a really neat transformation just within the intercollegiate scene 
over the last couple of years. When I was first hired and I was researching how many other programs were out there and what they were doing, there were only about 50 universities that have essentially done this. I mean, we were the first public university in the state of Texas to put a program together and eventually became the first public university to offer scholarships in the state of Texas. Now there are over 180 varsity programs that exist and more definitely researching and kind of going under the way. I think there's now eight in the state of Texas. So it's pretty exciting. It is very exciting. And how do I follow how the UNT esports teams and the program are moving along? I'd say the social media platform that we use the most would be our Twitter account at UNT Esports. If you want to watch our matches live, we broadcast on twitch.tv slash UNT Esports. So that's our student production to cover our matches. And if you're looking to get really engaged with our community, or if you're actually thinking about coming to UNT to compete for UNT, I highly recommend you go to our Discord community. So that's discord.gg slash UNT Esports. And for those of you that are unfamiliar with it, Discord is essentially a social media platform that's very focused towards gamers. I also had seen that the 2017 International Olympic Committee acknowledged that competitive esports could be considered as a sporting activity and that the players involved prepare and train with an intensity which may be comparable to athletes in traditional sports. So, do you see esports in our Olympic future? Someday. You think so? I do think someday. I know right now the prospects are slim. I, I really do think that the the demand is there. There are millions of people that watch esports that are passionate about it that for a lot of people that I interact with, in some cases, care more about an Overwatch team versus a local basketball team or something like that. So I know that the support would be there if it happened, but I think we're still very new in the grand scheme of things. Olympic archery has been around since the, the Greek times, but competitive League of Legends has really only been around for about 10 years. So um, I think we've made significant strides within that short period of time, but I'm patient and I think it'll happen someday. Well, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much, Dylan. Best of luck to you and to the UNT Esports varsity teams. Thank you for having me. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with UNT's eSports Director, Dylan Ray. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ollie at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.